This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Are you curious about unschooling? Do you want to know what unschooling looks like? Then visit my other website, unschoolingdads.com. There you will find interviews and testimonials by many unschooling dads. You may also download the book, Unschooling Dads, for free, or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. If you're new here, let me tell you what this podcast is all about. It's about voluntarism, free markets, peaceful parenting, radical unschooling, and much more. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, July 31st, 2020. Last day of July, last day of the seventh month of 2020, the year in hell. We're going to continue the uh, Economics 101 miniseries and the Wizards Rules miniseries for the Economics 101. We are on the final part, part 10 of Economics for the Citizen by Walter Williams. So I'll need to figure out what to jump to next because I, I really like talking about economics. So got some ideas there. So I'm just going to read through this. This is uh, kind of uh, kind of a conclusion to his series, but um, well, let me just start reading. You'll see what I mean. He writes, in 10 short articles, there's no way to even scratch the surface of economic knowledge. I'll simply end the series with a discussion of a few popular sentiments that have high emotional worth but make little economic sense. I use some of these sentiments as a teaching device in my undergraduate classes. Here's one that has considerable popular appeal. It's wrong to profit from the misfortune of others. I asked my students whether they'd support a law against doing so, but I cautioned them with some examples. An orthopedist profits from your misfortune of having broken your leg skiing. When there's news of a pending ice storm, I, I doubt whether it saddens the hearts of those in the collision repair business. I also tell my students that I profit from their misfortune, their ignorance of economic theory. So he's got a few of these things, so I'll just stop right there. It's very popular. It's a very popular appeal. It's wrong to profit from the misfortune of others. The misfortune of others is not being, I, I would say that it's not being celebrated or praised, but rather the opportunity to help somebody who's experienced misfortune is what should be what should be praised. Okay, the the fact that there's someone or something there to make your misfortune a little more bearable, or a little less onerous, or a little less traumatic, or a little less of a burden is probably how we should look at this sort of thing. Right? If we don't eat we will starve and die. That's a type of misfortune. Yet, in order to prevent, or it would be misfortune if I went that way. Yet, I could go out and hunt, right? I could hunt squirrels. I could hunt ducks. I could, I mean, I might have to skirt the so-called law, but I could do that, right? And I could feed myself, or I could, I could find berries. I could find fruit trees. I could scavenge, right? I could hunt. I could gather, I could do those things. I could be totally self-dependent. I could even uh, get seeds or plant trees or do something, and then I've got to wait for stuff to grow. And a lot of people do that. 
right? They have their own gardens. Um, but even even in that case, where are they getting that stuff? I mean, you could go find some naturally growing fruit, trees, berries, uh, vegetables, tubers, get the seeds, and then get back home and plant them and then, you know, wait. You could do that. Typically what you would do, though, is you would go to the store where somebody's going to profit from your desire to uh, start a garden, right? Or you go to a restaurant and somebody's going to profit from your desire to stay alive, to prevent the misfortune of becoming really sick and ill and uh, malnourished and ultimately starving to death. Okay, so I'm, I'm grateful. I'm glad that when I'm hungry, it's easy for me to get food. That's not always true for everybody in the world. That's not always true. I'm glad that when I break my leg, I don't have to just, you know, be put out. <laughs> well, his leg's broken, time to put him out. <laughs> no, I can go to somebody who I know is going to profit from my misfortune, but that's okay because I'm glad they're there and they're happy for the opportunity, right, be, to, to help somebody. But guess what? They got to eat too. They got a house, they got a mortgage, they got a family, they got to feed. So no, it's not wrong to profit from the misfortune of others. All right. The other thing, and I don't know if he's going to get into this, but I've had this discussion with someone before that any trade where one party has more leverage than the other party is by definition exploitation. And exploit exploitation is by definition quote unquote wrong. And that doesn't have much sense in it from the way I see it. Because that would that would mean that every trade is exploitative. Because nobody has Nobody, no two people who are in a trade have the same bargaining power, have the same leverage. Okay, it's I think it's probably impossible to find two people with the exact same bargaining power in any given trade. So it, it, it's kind of meaningless, right? It's kind of nonsense to say that. If every trade is exploitative, then, then so what? Then maybe no trade is exploitative or something like that. I don't know. All right, let's go on to the next one. Then there's the claim that this or that price is unreasonable. I used to have conversations about this claim with Mrs. Williams early on in our 44-year marriage. She'd return from shopping complaining that stores were charging unreasonable prices. Having aired her complaint, she'd ask me to go out and unload a car trunk loaded with groceries and other items. Having completed the chore, I'd resume our conversation saying, Honey, I thought you said the prices were unreasonable. Are you an unre unreasonable person? Only an unreasonable person would pay unreasonable prices. All right, that and that brings up a really good point, and that is prices or values are subjective because she might not like the current price level. Maybe they did go up from the last time she went shopping, but she determined subjectively, personally, that the prices were still worth the goods being traded for the, for it, and that if the prices were truly unreasonable, then they would have been out of her they would have been above that threshold of that value judgment. They would not have been worth buying. If she had walked into the store and all the prices were 10 times higher than they were the last time, instead of a gallon of milk being $2 or $2.50, whatever it is, it was 20 or 25 Then you can complain, these are unreasonable. I'm going somewhere else, right? And then you leave and you find another store and then you check the prices. And if they're 10 times higher, you would say, man, this is still unreasonable. I'm going somewhere else. Okay, so you're proving, at least in two stores, that the prices truly were unreasonable because they were they were too much for you, for you to find them worth uh, trading for. If you go to a third store and the prices are that high, 
you've got to think what the hell's going on here. <laughs> three different stores from three different store chains, not in business together, have raised their prices this much, right? Then you probably got to open, you know, you probably got to go to the, uh, you know, a news website and figure out what's going on. Maybe something's happened. I mean, this, this isn't, or, you know, you can, you can ask why are the price is so high all of a sudden. Maybe you didn't realize it, but you've been in a coma for 40 years. <laughs> anyway, um, but that's a good point. Um, obviously the price wasn't unreasonable if you were still willing to pay it. Right. But it's just, it's just this language, right? Like before the, you know, profit from the misfortune of others, the misfortune of others. This is emotional language. This is what he's talking about. Prices are unreasonable. This is just emotional language. Okay, the next one. The long and short of it is that the conversation never went over well, and we both ceased discussions of reasonable or unreasonable prices. The point is that whatever price a transaction is transacted at, transacted at represents a meeting of the mind of both buyer and seller. Both viewed themselves as being better off than the next alternative, not making the transaction. That's not to say that the seller wouldn't have found a higher price more pleasing or the buyer wouldn't have been pleased with a lower price. That's, uh, that's another point. You could say that the prices were unreasonable and the, the person selling, they would rather sell them for more, much more. But then it's, it, it's difficult to find customers to pay those prices. So it makes just as much sense for the employer to say the customers are being unreasonable when they don't want to buy at a higher price as it is for a uh, for a customer to say the prices are unreasonable when um, when they're still willing to 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 pay the price right the good or service they want is is still uh, worth uh, having the not having at that price something to keep in mind okay next uh, example how about your parents' admonition that whatever's worth doing is worth doing as well as possible that's not a wise admonition. I tell my students often to their amazement that it might not be worth it to try to get to the best grade possible in economics. Let's look at it. Say they have biology, physics, English, and economics classes. They work their butts off in economics earning an A, but spending so much time studying economics takes time away from the other classes, and they wind up earning an F in biology, a C in physics, and a D in English. That makes for a semester GPA of a grade point average of 1.75. They'd be better off in terms of grade point average if they spent less time studying economics, maybe earning a C, and allocating more time to biology and English, and thereby earning a C grade in all of their subjects. They'd have a higher grade point average, 2.0, and wouldn't be on academic probation. <laughs> so that's that's a good one. Whatever's worth doing is worth doing as well as possible. Um, well, that's obviously not true. As this example shows, I mean, maybe you are somebody, maybe you're a superstar and you can get an A in every class. Maybe you can, but that, that seems exceptional. Okay. Most people probably can't. And putting all of your time in one subject is going to increase your neglect of the other subjects. And that could lead to a worse grade point average. Than it than if then then had you given all of your subjects equal equal time of study, I think I think it's kind of interesting. The only the only time I've ever heard this phrase from my parents, whatever's worth doing is worth doing as well as possible, is when they were when they were trying to get me to do chores that they were making me do to to do them better. Right. What I should have come back with is whatever's worth doing is worth paying for. <laughs> whatever's worth having is worth paying for. And, you know, they had kids, so they didn't have to pay. I mean, they, they, they did start some kind of an allowance 
later on when we were a bit older, we were still forced to do the chores. And after the chores, they would do an inspection. So we would start at $10 on a Saturday. Okay, you get $10 and you got to do these chores. But then we're going to do an inspection. And if we find problems, we're going to deduct a dollar here, a dollar there. And by the end, maybe you've got $6. You've done the same work. And this wasn't, um, this wasn't voluntary, right? This was, you do these obviously, or what we kick you out of the family (laughs) or, you know, obviously I'm just gonna be really mad. Maybe I'll spank you, whatever. And so this phrase, whatever's worth doing is worth doing as well as possible or similar phrases they would use to try to get us to do a really good job. But the thing is, this is not an activity of our choosing. Okay, this is not an activity that, that we have an intrinsic uh, motivation to do. I mean, I know you're trying to sweeten it by rewarding our uh, slave <laughs> our slave labor. Um, and then, you know, you dangle the carrot and then you say you're going to take pieces of the carrot away for any problems you find. But it's not the same. It's, it's not the same. Um, all right. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. Another example, you ask your wife to have the house as neat and clean as possible when you return from work. You return and the house is immaculate. You compliment her saying, well, that's a great job, honey. What's for dinner and where are the kids? She responds, I don't know where the kids are and there's, there's no dinner prepared, but the house is immaculate. <laughs> Just as getting the best economics grade possible is not optimal, so is doing the best job possible cleaning the house. That's a good one. I've actually got to tell my wife um, to not, to not clean so much. She's really kind of one of those uh, clean, clean, I don't want to say clean freaks because that's kind of rude, but I don't know. I can't think of anything else to, to say. And she's always like doing the dishes because she doesn't like dishes in the, she doesn't like dishes in the sink. And the way she grew up and the way we've continued since we got married is that dishes are cleaned by hand and put on the, the drying rack. We've got a dishwasher. We've got a new dishwasher, but you know, it's just a dry, it's just a, a, glor- a glorified drying rack when we need it. Uh, she does, she does run it once in a while, but anyway, anyway, I've got to, I've got to tell her, Hey, look, it's okay. If, if the dishes pile up a bit, you know, you don't need to be so gung ho about making sure they're not in there, you know, or other things. And she's, she's gotten better. She tolerates a lot more, um, you know, little messes around the house, usually created by my five-year-old as she sets up her toys, different, different types of toys in different parts of the house. And then, you know, leaves them there and moves on to the next corner of the house. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. You can walk in any room and she's got like all these toys set up that she'd been playing with. And it's one of those things that you're just, you're going to miss, you know, when it's all gone and they're, and they're gone, you're just gonna, you're really going to miss that. So she's, she's learned to tolerate that and realizes that it's not forever. You know, the time will come where it can be put away and, and unfortunately, it'll stay away, at least until we have grandkids, right? All right. All right, final one. Then there's, you can never be too safe. Yes, you can. How many of us bother to inspect the hydraulic brake lines in our cars before we start the engine and head off to work? Doing so would be safer than simply assuming that the lines were intact and driving off. After all, prior to launching a space vehicle, the people at NASA make no similar assumptions. They go through a countdown of all systems, taking nothing for granted. Erring on the side of overcaution is costly, and so er- and so is erring on the side of undercaution. Though for a given choice, one might be costlier, costlier than the other. This reminds me of okay, that's the end of this. But let me let me talk about this other example. 
this reminds me of sometimes you're driving down the freeway and all the major cities have these signs that will say clever, quippy sayings, right? About buckling your seatbelt or not driving too fast. Sometimes it'll say something like, um, something along the lines of the only acceptable goal is zero fatalities. The only acceptable goal is zero fatalities. But we know that if that were true, then the speed limit wouldn't be 70. The speed limit would be 40, 35, 30. If you lowered the, the speed limits everywhere and made everybody drive around slowly, then you would have less, uh, less people, fewer people dying on the roads from either getting hit or getting in a crash. If everybody were driving 20 miles an hour around the city, 15 to 20, and 30 to 40 on the freeways, you would probably have the quote-unquote only acceptable goal of zero fatalities. But we don't do that. We wouldn't tolerate the government creating speed limits at that level, which proves that zero fatalities is not, is not the only acceptable goal. We all accept some fatalities. We're okay with that. We tolerate that because we want to go 70 miles an hour on the freeway. We want to get to grandma's house in 30 minutes instead of three hours. Or we want to get to work in under an hour instead of four or five hours. So zero fatalities is not the only acceptable goal. The, the sign, when it says something like that, is demonstrably false. So every time I see that, it just reminds me of, of you know, this is, this is obviously nonsense. Whoever's writing these is, is obviously just writing nonsense. And I always, I always remember these arguments. I always remember these types of emotional appeals. And that's actually an example that, that Walter Williams has used in some of his columns before on this sort of thing. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's it for the economics for the citizen as a source for this Economics 101 miniseries. So I'll have to find something else if you've been enjoying them. I, sh I certainly have. I like talking about economics. All right, let's go on to Wizard's Rules. We're looking at Wizard's 10th Rule. Wizard's 10th Rule is from the 10th book of the Sword of Truth series by Terry Goodkind called Phantom. I'm not going to give you a synopsis or anything. Um, I'm just going to read you what the rule is, and I've got some thoughts about it. So Wizard's 10th Rule is this. Willfully turning aside from the truth is treason to oneself. Willfully turning aside from the truth is treason to oneself. Now, I think that's an interesting rule. And these, you know, these are called wizard's rules. Um, but they're, they're more points of wisdom or principles, I guess. They're not really rules. Uh, anyway, I wonder if I talked about that at some point. But this is kind of an interesting one. It, it brings a lot to my mind. Willfully turning aside from the truth is treason to oneself. Well, it begs the question, what is the truth? And the truth is something that I've, for a long time, I've had this idea that whatever the truth is, I want to know what it is, and I want to accept it, and I want to make it a part of my mindset, and I want to make it a part of my identity, I guess. And when I first started this uh, intellectual journey, which it did not actually start with economics and philosophy, it actually started with religion, it started with me falling in love with my wife, girlfriend at the time, 
and knowing that she was a convert to the Mormon church and that she would pro- she probably, whether she admitted or not to me, knowing where I was, not being an active member of the Mormon church, she probably wanted to get married in a Mormon temple, you know, with, a, with an active Mormon husband. But we were falling in love with one another. And I actually, I actually broke up with her. I actually broke up with her because, because I believed that I could not give her what I knew she truly wanted because I wasn't interested in being active in the Mormon church. So I actually broke up with her. And then um, I'm not going to talk about how we got back together. It was really sweet. But we got back together. And, I, and she, she had told me that, you know, that wasn't important to her. It's okay. She just, she really loved me. And she wanted to see where, where it would go. And I really liked her. And, you know, so I said, okay, all right, let's, let's keep doing this thing, this, this path that we're on. But then I felt kind of bad because I didn't want to, I didn't want to get to that point where it would be that much harder to break up knowing that I couldn't give her what she wanted. So I told myself, I said, okay, I've got, the reason I'm not active in the Mormon church is because I have certain beliefs about the Mormon church that I learned from my father who fell away from the church. Okay, we could call these anti-Mormon beliefs, anti-Mormon arguments, right? So let's let's dig into some of these, some of these things he told me about, and let's figure out if they're true. Okay, so that that's that was like my first thing to where it's like, I got to figure out the truth of this thing. And whatever the truth is, I'm going to commit to that. So then I discovered, um, I discovered Mormon apologetics and Mormon scholarship and very, very intelligent Mormon scholars. And I started eating it all up. Okay. There were, um, Mormon apologetic wikis where I could go and search for specific things. And I was introduced to a lot of really interesting, uh, Mormon thinkers. And so then I would, I would, uh, find things that, you know, specific things that they wrote some of them books, some of them just really long articles. And, you know, I would, I would get deeper into that. I would discover Mormon scholars like Hugh Nibley, which, who is, I have a lot of respect for. He did a lot of scholarship, a lot of scholarly work. Um, and I would just eat up all I could. And so that really put me in this, this place where I just, I felt really good about getting back into the church. And when I did that, I started going through um, at the time, I was only a certain level in the priesthood. With I don't know if you you probably don't realize this, um, but with the Mormon Church, when a boy turns twelve years old, he gets what's called the ironic priesthood or the lesser priesthood. There's two priesthoods. He gets ordained a deacon and gets the ironic priesthood. And then when he turns fourteen, he, within the ironic priesthood, he he goes he goes up to the level of teacher. And these levels have certain roles that, that you play. Okay, certain jobs that you do. And um, and then when you turn 16, you become a priest and you get the Melchizedek priesthood, which is the higher priesthood. And then when you turn 18, you become an elder. And then at 19, you're supposed to go on a mission and you're, you know, you're elder so-and-so and you, go, you serve your mission. Well, I had stopped at teacher, so I didn't have the Melchizedek priesthood. And because I was getting active in the church again, I, I thought, you know, I went, I talked to an uncle of mine who was active, I couldn't talk to my father. So I went to his brother <laughs> and I told him what had been going on with me, where I was and what I wanted to do. And he supported me, told me what I needed to do. I needed to, I needed to talk to my bishop. I needed to, you know, repent of any sins, um, you know, confess, confess any sins I'd had, repent, 
and then he can, uh, you know, make me an elder and give me the higher priesthood and I can get back on track, so to speak. So I did that, talked to my bishop. My biggest sin at that point was premarital sex, not with my then girlfriend, but with uh, a previous girlfriend. So I told him about this and he was very, um, he was a great guy. I, I liked this bishop. He was, he was a fun guy. He was, under, he was understanding, and he told me, okay, this is what you need to do. You need to buy this book, Spencer Kimball, Miracle of Forgiveness. I need you to read it and think about it. And then after that, you'll be good. We can move forward. So that's what I did. And, and then I asked my grandfather, my father's father, to give me the priesthood so, my, so that my priesthood line would go through him. And he gave me this little card that, that chronicles his priesthood line all the way back to Joseph Smith, who got it from Peter, James, and John who got it from Christ. So that happened and I'm all set, you know, and, and, and I'm also continuing to study Mormon scholarship and it's just, I'm just eating it all up. So that was my whole goal from that point forward was I want to, you know, when something catches my eye or catches my ear and it's interesting, I want to figure out the truth of it and I want to learn to accept it and just see where it leads. So that started with Mormon apologetics. I got active in the Mormon church and at some point, I've, I've written about this a lot, and I think I've talked about it before as well. I was reading the Deseret News, which is one of the newspapers here in Salt Lake. And the reason I was reading that I was looking through the Deseret News is because, you know, I'm a good Mormon now, and the Deseret News is owned by the Mormon Church. So this is going to be my go-to source, right? And they featured a couple of columnists, weekly columnists that caught my eye. And those columnists were Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell. Right, the Deseret News was kind of the conservative newspaper, and the Salt Lake Tribune was more the liberal newspaper. That's kind of that's kind of how it is. Both are still around, by the way. Anyway, so the Deseret News, you know, they've got the conservative voices, and and two of them were Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell. And so I'm reading them, and I just find them fascinating. And once in a while, they're talking about stuff like the minimum wage and black teenagers and the black, you know, what's happened to the black family from the welfare state, things like this. And these, these things, I probably would have dismissed them if they were written by, uh, quote unquote, white economists, but they weren't. They were black economists. And so I didn't have that hurdle. I was able to listen to their arguments without this uh, prejudice, I guess we could say, about, you know, maybe they're just, maybe they're just themselves prejudiced or racist in some way. That's why they're talking about this stuff. Because how could they be? They were black. They grew up, you know, in Brooklyn. They, I mean, they grew up with a with a true black experience, quote unquote, right? Anyway, it was very interesting, and it's what got me interested in economics. And so, same thing. It's just I just I just dove right into economics. You know, I sort of lost interest in the the religion. Um, I still have a bookshelf. I used to have two bookshelves full of religious books. Uh, now it's just down to like half. Gotten rid of a lot of it. Anyway. But now I'm, I'm jumping into economics and I'm, you know, reading up everything I can and I'm going from school to school and I'm being introduced to more and more personalities. And so truth was always my goal. And from economics, it w I jumped into politics and political philosophy. And here I am today, a voluntarist, an anarchist, a you know, a libertarian. And eventually that, you know, with my, with my political commitments, or I should say my political ideals being non-aggression and non-coercion. I realized there was an inconsistency with how I was raising my own kids. I was not a libertarian in the house. I was an authoritarian. And I thought, this isn't right. And then a friend 
introduced me to Alfie Cohn's Unconditional Parenting, and I went down that I went down that rabbit hole of peaceful parenting, and ulti- and eventually, my my son was starting school. He was in preschool at the time, and school is all about rewards and punishments and control and regimentation. And I was realizing this, and it was like I don't want to do this stuff because we're trying to undo that stuff here at home. We don't want to parent that way, and I'm going to send him off to another parent to parent that way. It doesn't make sense. So then I started researching homeschooling and the different types of homeschoolings and the different ways to homeschool and eventually discovered unschooling and then radical unschooling. And that, that's where we're at today, you know, 10 years later. That's what we've been doing. But it was always motivated by this, uh, this search for truth. Let's figure out the truth of something. Let's look at different sides of it. And then let's accept it. Bring it in. But now here I am going further in that direction. And I've been introduced to something called postmodernism. Now, before you run away, and I've talked about postmodernism recently, so you might not, but before you run away, postmodernism is not what people like Jordan Peterson and Gad Saad and Stephen Hicks say that it is. It's not. When they're attacking postmodernism, they're attacking a straw man. I've decided. The more I study postmodernism by from actual postmodernists, original thinkers, and people who are later, who have learned from the original thinkers and are doing what they can to explain it, and... The more I listen to these guys attack it, the more obvious it is to me that they're not attacking postmodernism. They're attacking social justice theory and identity politics, and that's fine. But then they're putting that all together and they're calling it postmodernism. It's not. And the first, the first, the first way you know it's not is that postmodernism is not prescriptive. It's not normative. It's not like economics. It's not normative. It's not you should do this, you should do that because it's wrong, because ethics, because morality, because whatever. Identity politics and social justice theory are normative. They are prescriptive. Libertarianism, voluntarism, how you should organize society if you value liberty, things like that. Those are prescriptive. Postmodernism is descriptive. It seeks to describe um, and to uh, describe in a way that deconstructs essentialist or universalist truth claims. So now I'm like, the truth is important. I'm always seeking the truth. But now I've hit this thing that talks about deconstructing truth claims. Whoa, take a step back. Take a step back. And it doesn't say that you should deconstruct universalist truth claims. It doesn't say you should because it's not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. It's just, it's just a process. It's just, um, from what I gather, the, post, the postmodernist thinkers and they didn't even call themselves postmodernists. This is this is a label that came later. Okay, when it when it was obvious that they were all kind of similar. They're different in many ways, but there's some similarities. And, and a lot of the similarities is, is this deconstruction of truth claims. And I guess modernism is all about building truth claims, and so postmodernism is deconstructing. I don't know if that's where the name comes from. That's kind of the way I thought about it. I could be wrong. But there's there's you know people make truth claims. I've certainly come across truth claims. Here's one. The non-aggression principle, or, or let's back up, the voluntary principle. All human relations should happen voluntarily or not at all. That sounds like a truth claim, but what is it really? What is it really we're saying? Are we saying that there's some obligation for people to behave voluntarily toward one another? Well, if that's what we're saying, what is the source of that obligation? Where does that obligation come from? Does it just come from the universe? Does it come from God? Right, questioning and deconstructing these truth claims is what postmodernism is all about. 
So it's it's not an offensive thing. It's not something to it's not something to um to be weary of or to to dread unless you're somebody who's holding to or pushing forward certain truth claims that maybe you benefit from in some way. So there's other there's other truth claims and why people confuse postmodernism with identity politics and social justice or critical social justice or critical race theory or whatever what have you from what I can tell, is from one little connection between the two. And the latter totally rejects it anyway. And this is a point that Thad Russell likes to make whenever he's asked to, to defend postmodernism from its uh, modern enemies. Um, and that is the idea that race, okay, the idea that there are separate races is socially constructed. But how does, how does postmodernism reach that conclusion. Well, it just asks what, you know, what is, what are the essential characteristics that separate races, right? You probably have in your mind stereotypical representatives of different race. You probably have a, a regular black guy in your mind and a, and a white, quote unquote, white guy and, an, you know, and a Chinese person. And you can see their faces and you can see that they're different. You can see that this person's eyes are different. This person's skin is darker. And this person has a different shaped nose. And you might think that skin color or eye shape is the essential characteristic of a given race. But then you got to ask yourself, are there any exceptions to this? And if it's an essential characteristic, how can there be exceptions? Okay, because there are really dark Indians and there are really light uh, black Americans or Americans of African descent, right? I mean, just, just right there, the names we give them have obviously changed over time. Okay. So it's not a universal truth that this person is a Negro. Okay. That's what they used to be called. This, this black guy, they used to be called something worse than that. I'm not going to say it. I've said it before. I'm not going to say it. it starts with an N, <laughs> but then we made the universal claim that they are Negroes. And then that changed to, they are black. And then that changed to African-American. Oh, but wait, he's British. And then that changed to um, American of African descent. And then that changed to person of color. So what we call the different races has obviously changed over time. What's to prevent them? What's to prevent it from changing in the future? One way to look at this is for everything, there's an object and a subject. The object is what it is. The subject is what we call it. And when we confuse the subject for the object and we claim that the subject is the universal truth about the object, that's when we get into trouble. This is just some of the things that postmodernism tries to dig into. So postmodernism isn't, isn't a bad thing from what I can tell. It's actually very interesting. But now it's got me looking at other truth, so-called truth claims. And I kind of started, excuse me, I kind of started doing this before and, you know, I, I'd, I'd even heard about postmodernism. I started, and you can find this early on in my writings on voluntarism. I started to try to be clear that when I say things like all human relations should happen voluntarily or not at all, that should is a self-imposed obligation. Okay, there is no universal obligation to deal with others voluntarily. It really is self-imposed, which means it's a matter of preference. I prefer to deal with others voluntarily, and I prefer that they deal with me on a voluntary basis. And so I call myself a voluntarist, and I criticize other people's 
actions and behavior um, from this perspective. And that's fine. Postmodernism doesn't say that's bad or that's wrong. It just encourages us to be um, to be clear about what it is we're actually saying. I'm saying that I prefer voluntary human relations. And so I believe that people should, based on my own personal subjective preference, people should relate to others voluntarily or not at all. Personally, I wouldn't want to live in a world that was not mostly based on voluntary human relations. I would prefer to see all human relations happen voluntarily. And maybe one day more of them will be, right? The more laws that we can abolish, the more governments we can reduce in size and scope and ultimately replace with other mechanisms that are voluntary based, I think the better off we'll all be. So it's interesting. Postmodernism is interesting. Let's get back to the, the rule here. Willfully turning aside from the truth is treason to oneself. This begs the question, what is the truth? That's another thing that postmodernists, postmodernists are attacked for is that when science declares some truth, postmodernists don't easily accept that. Let me explain what I mean. They don't say, oh, the science is settled. That's, that's the universal truth and that will never change. I, I, would, I would think that a good scientist would recognize that that is false. A good scientist should be <laughs> a postmodernist. Because a postmodernist would say, well, you say that that's such and such is a scientific truth. 20 years ago, the opposite was the, the quote unquote scientific truth. And the science was quote unquote settled. 20 years before that, it was different as well. And 20 years before that. So who's to say that 20 years from now, that so-called scientific truth is not changed? Okay, postmodernists don't say there are no truths. It just says for every truth claim, let's deconstruct it. Let's see if it really is a true, if it really is true, and if it's a universal truth, or if it's an essential truth. Because chances are it's not. Chances are somebody is benefiting from that so-called truth claim. Okay, the truth claim that Negroes are inferior to non-Negroes benefited certain people. That was an accepted truth claim at some point. It no longer is. Postmodernism recognizes that. And it recognizes that there are truth claims today that hold a lot of power. Truth claims are knowledge, and knowledge is power. Knowledge is discursive, they say, right? We tell stories with this knowledge, and that builds power for some people. So I agree with that, Russell, that people who are interested in liberty and libertarianism should take postmodernism seriously. And, and the postmodernist um, method, I guess we could say, of deconstructing truth claims, because there's a lot of truth claims that empower and embolden and serve uh, coercion and government. And those truth claims should be deconstructed and shown to be what they really are, probably lies. Just like the lie that Negroes are inferior to non-Negroes. That's what postmodernism gives the world. Oh, what I was talking about before was the connection between postmodernism and identity politics. And the reason identity politics actually betrays. So postmodernism makes the argument through deconstruction that race is a social construct. But identity politics goes the opposite. It says your race is an essential characteristic. Your group identity is an essential characteristic of who you are. And that means specific things. 
So identity po- politics people and social justice warriors are ma- are themselves making essentialist truth claims, which is quite contrary to postmodernism. It's the opposite. Postmodernism seeks to deconstruct essentialist truth claims, not to build, not to make them and build them up. So when these guys like Jordan Peterson and Gad Sad are attacking postmodernism, they're attacking a straw man. They're attacking its opposite. They're attacking identity politics and social social justice theory, and that's fine. But when they're when they're throwing the the label postmodernism in there, they're attacking a straw man. And in fact, my understanding and what I've seen. The uh, Frankfurt School Cultural Marxists, which is sort of the precursor to all this identity politics stuff, those guys hate the postmodernists because the postmodernists deconstruct their arguments. The Marxists hate the postmodernists. You can Google that. It's not the same thing. All right. Willfully turning aside from the truth is treason to oneself. I would modify this to say willfully turning aside from the truth as is currently known is treason to oneself. The other, the other, um, uh, the other point uh, that this brought to my mind was the idea of free will, and I talked about this recently. All of my living experience screams at me that I have free will, that I have the ability to choose otherwise in everything that I choose. Some of my actions are more automatic than others. Granted, I have physical limitations. Granted, but there are points where I believe I have the ability to choose. I didn't have to sit down and record this podcast. I chose to. I didn't have to listen to my bladder this morning and get out of bed and go potty and wake up. I chose to. Sometimes I ride it out a little bit longer, five more minutes until I just am going to burst. You know, I don't have to. I choose to. So I believe in libertarian free will. And I think that for me to willfully reject my lived experience would be to turn away from truth and be and to commit treason against myself, as this thing says. So I like that. There's a connection there. The other point I like to make is that because our lived experience is free will, to reject free will is to uh, willfully take part in delusion, right? What is delusion? I actually spelled this out. Uh, a delusion is an impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality. Okay, your reality is free will. When you reject free will and say there is no free will, you are willfully engaging in delusion. I'm not interested. I'm not willing to do that. A lot of people are willing to do that. They're willing to accept, and in my opinion, they're choosing to accept this. They may not believe they are, but <laughs> they are. They're choosing to accept that they're choosing to accept it was not willful, that it was just automatic, that it was just the next line of code, you know, in their programming. I'm not willing to accept that. So it's simple. Either I'm choosing to not accept it, and I really am, or I can't help but choose not to accept it because it's how I'm programmed. It doesn't make sense to me. I feel it seems like I have free will. That's my lived experience. Everything about Everything I do, the fact that life is a struggle, life is hard, to me, proves that I have free will. Um, But hey, maybe that's a truth claim. Maybe that's a universalist truth claim. I can accept that. I can accept that that's a truth claim, and it probably can be deconstructed. Where does it come from? Right? There There were people, for whatever reason, that have talked about free will and having it, and we can, we can look at the genealogy of that truth claim, and... You know, we can, you know, that might be an interesting research project for somebody, but 
putting all that aside, I feel like I'm choosing. So I don't know how I can accept anything else. And postmodernists don't say that there is no truth. It doesn't say that there are no there are there are um, there aren't truths in the world in the universe. But if you were to ask a postmodernist whether or not they think something is universally true, they would probably say, "I don't know." They wouldn't say no because then that constitutes a, its own truth claim, right? They would say, "I don't know." Let's uh, dig into it. Let's deconstruct the claim. Let's see where it comes from. Let's see what it says. Let's see where it comes from. Let's see who's saying it. Let's see why the truth claim is even being made. Those are important too. So it's interesting. All right. Uh, let's see. What did we do? We concluded the economics for the citizen series as part of the economics 101 mini series. And we progressed to wizard's 10th rule from the wizard's rules mini series. We've got 11, 12, 13, 14. There's 14 wizard's rules. So we'll have four more of those. I got to figure out what I'm going to do for the economic stuff. Okay. Thanks so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.